Welcome one, welcome all to Pros and Cons, a River Do's and River Don'ts production where we read the McCole Ostow tie-in novels for the Riverdale series about three chapters at a time. I am your host, Quinn Welsh Wilson, and I am joined today by the host who always accompanies me... Rob Seth, how you doing? I'm doing pretty okay. I this am spinning. Is, this book's amazing. This book is on another level. I don't know if it's because it's due to the vicissitudes of recording other stuff. It's been a long break since the last one we recorded and like my tolerance went down. Or if it actually just goes to another level of absurd bizarreness. I don't know the answer to that. The tone, the the pacing, the beats, the rhythm of this has me all jumbled up. It feels like a new thing. <laughs> It feels totally new. I don't, I don't know what's happening, and I already read it, so. Yeah, speaking of that, (laughs) it's something we'll check in on as we sit here and we talk about this, but there was a section in this first chapter here that I feel like I had to read two or three times to actually understand what was going on. Like, even just at a basic factual what is moving around Yeah, to say nothing of whether it's understandable in the context of the story. Right. But we have so much to get to, so what do you say, Rob? How about we just dive right into the shit, into the mud, into the slop? Yes, and and I want to say that this particular shit mud slop is eerily reminiscent of the kind of shit mud slop that was emptied out of the septic tank out back of the haunted Overlook Hotel from the Stephen King novel The Shining. Oh, that's foreshadowing. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that when when we come back. Thanks. So we open chapter nine with a, we'll say a document. The nature of this document is frankly inscrutable. It, I thought it was a brochure. Is what it sure looks like. like it, a brochure. It says, welcome to Shadow Lake at the top, which, you know, that gives off brochure vibes for sure. And it gives a little spiel about your membership in this community. So this is something that's handed out to people who presumably kind of like are into Shadow Lake or whatever. Right. If you are not a homeowner, you are a prospective buyer. You would think at this point in the document. Yes. It's uh, one sentence in. Yeah. And there's a reason we're stepping so carefully through this. (laughs) You have to dissect this thing piece by piece or you're going to step on a mine and you're going to die. Mm hmm. So it bigs up how luxurious and private and safe Shadow Lake is. Quality and security. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, But it also goes on to make it clear that more or less you forfeit all of your rights as a U.S. citizen when you move there. Well, and let's let's just work through this slowly. Do you know what the first thing you give up is? What's the first thing that you have to give up? Why, it's your home address. That's right. Sadly, in the year of our Lord 2020, dating the podcast, the idea that you wouldn't need a postal address is less wild than when this book was written. Yep. Because we might not have a postal service shortly, because we live in hell. We sure do. This book was not written in the fuck usps era no so no it was not it's just they magically have the ability to not be on the grid despite being like not like a fucking group of tents it's giant luxury cabins and stuff and it's right. just like nah no post office address honestly the more you read this the more i am surprised that the shadow lake community was not another fire festival <laughs> 
Well, no, because it's probably just uh, in their back pocket to make it into another cult, like a rich people eyes wide shut cult for some subsequent season of Riverdale if they run out of other things to do. Right, right. I think. Um, so yes, you your mailing address will be provided in your new member packet and should be shared only with trusted confidants to protect the uncompromising privacy of our group. None of the homes are numbered. Yep. Uh, by the way, like some of this other stuff about how like, oh, you must comply to everything we say or you're subject to like immediate eviction or whatever. Uh, we'll get there. We're not there yet, Rob. That's true. That's tr- well, I'm sorry. Yes. An important part of the third paragraph is that it describes the development as spacious and quote intelligent design which is that ostow i'm sorry that doesn't mean what you seem to think it means unless this really is a cult and in their literature they are claiming that their housing development was literally invented by god (laughs) yeah no intelligent design definitely has a meaning and that is not what it means (laughs) It doesn't mean that your brain genius team of architects cobbled this together. <laughs> well, unless the head of that team is Yahweh. Yeah, could be. Um, again, they stress the importance of security and surveillance 24-7. Because your They've safety... got a private security team. Wouldn't Don't it be even weird... worry about calling the cops. Right. Wouldn't it be weird, Rob, if this actually like came up at some point in the book? Like they had to look into the security records or something and like get a tape oh you mean like there'd be foreshadowing yeah instead of just random bullshit mm-hmm. hmm. yeah i don't see it i i i wish but i don't see it either now this fourth paragraph is honestly where things go from seeming a bit suspicious to being outright incomprehensible So first of all, as a Shadow Lake homeowner, you'll be asked to complete a non-disclosure agreement ensuring your commitment to our community bylaws. That's not what a non-disclosure agreement is. No, it is not. What they are describing is the action of a contract. A non-disclosure agreement means that you've signed a contract that entails the circumstances under which you may or may not disclose information about something. Which is not the same as compliance with bylaws, which is just a normal-ass contract. Unless what they're telling us is that everyone here in the Shadow Lake community must memorize the bylaws, for they cannot be spoken. The first rule of Shadow Lake is that you don't talk about the first rule of Shadow Lake. So, point number two. Uh Uh-huh. Compliance with our bylaws is mandatory, and any infraction will be subject to immediate review by our homeowners board. That one stands on its own a bit better. Sure, a bit strange for this Welcome to Shadow Lake pamphlet, but sure. Like I said, it's both an advertisement and a threat, conveniently wrapped into one. Violators may be evicted, effective immediately. I don't know what, like, the New York state laws are about eviction, but I'm pretty sure you have to give notice. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, New York's not, like, one of the most draconian states. And yes... They do this great, this is great. By signing this document, homeowners waive potential claims to future damages in the event of termination of contract. Like, here's the thing. That shit is not enforceable under public policy, but Ostow has hit some realism here because landlords put that kind of exact garbage in contracts all the time to intimidate people out of trying to seek any kind of legal counsel or legal action against them. Oh, yeah, it's classic landlord bullying. They make people sign something that says, I have no human rights, even though that doesn't act, that part of the document has no legal weight. Right, you literally, you can't enforce it. No, it's not, it's not legal to enforce. Within, within the first page of this two-page thing, we go from, like, 
being a welcome packet material thing to just threats. And I have a question about this last sentence. The This document they refer to, are they talking about this Welcome to Shadow Lake brochure, or are they talking about the non-disclosure agreement which entails the bylaws? Because if they're talking about the non-disclosure agreement, which entails the bylaws, why would you put that information here? Not to mention, why would you call it this document? It appears that you're intended to sign the brochure. Right. It, it is incredibly vague. There looks like there should be a spot for a signature this here. This fucking document doesn't know what it is. It is a brochure. It is a non-disclosure agreement. It is a contract. It is a lore drop. <laughs> Well, there's another page, you're right. And it is thicker and meatier than the page preceding it. God, let's get in to the Shadow Lake contract lore. <laughs> Why is this the first thing? We had this break from recording, Quinn, and I feel <laughs> and I feel like it's like we didn't go to the gym for like a month. And then we went back and we're like, what are we going to do? Oh, we're going to max out like a single rep squat, like 50 pounds higher than we've ever done before. Let's do it. I felt like my entire spirit after I read this, as I was reading this, was shot out the back of my head into the wall behind me. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm crying. <laughs> so... The history of Shadow Lake is rich and storied. First established in the early 1920s, Shadow Lake itself soon became a synecdoche for northeastern urbanites seeking bam, summer bam, bam, escape. Bam, 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 bam. I'm buzzing in, English major buzzing in. That Go is ahead. not what synecdoche means unless she's doing something real, real weird. All right, clarify that for us. <laughs> okay. I was just like, I'm on such a wild ride here, I'm not going to challenge it. What is a synecdoche? All right, I'm going to read the actual definition just to, we'll do Merriam-Webster just to, just to be like very clear. A figure of speech by which a part is put for the whole, such as 50 sail for 50 ships, or, or you could do the genus for the species in like a less, uh, or like, you know, a broader category for a specific category in like a more rare way of using the word, like saying creature instead of man, like he's the king's creature or whatever. But the main use is you take a literal part of something physically and use it to describe the whole thing. It's related to metonymy where you take a symbolic object. So, for example, there's a lot of counter phrases or words in some languages. We don't have a whole bunch of them in English, but we do say, for example, like 20 head of cattle. Yes, exactly. 50 sail of ships, uh, maybe a certain number of hands, uh, in some task that you do on a farm or on a pirate ship. So that's what a, that's what synecdoche is. Uh, what? Which means... What is she trying to convey here, then? Well, we have to just break it down. Shadow Lake, the housing development, became a synecdoche for northeastern urbanites seeking summer escape and mountain air. Meaning, Shadow Lake itself, the housing development, is physically a part of the urbanites who are seeking those things. Shadow Lake, a property development, is somehow physically part of a group of people. Um, that, that's, that is the horrific, like, Bentley Little novel that we're describing here. I am equally interested in what she was trying to convey. 
<laughs> I mean, I think like she could have just literally said the word symbolic, and that would have conveyed a coherent meaning. Like, Shadow Lake became symbolic of Northeastern Urbanites, or symbolic for Northeast. Like, like this is the exact kind of place that those Urbanites seek out. Like, okay. it, is the, it is like the platonic example of the kind of place they're looking for. I think that's what she was trying to get at, but she used the fucking word synecdoche just to be cute, I guess. No one who watches Riverdale knows what a fucking synecdoche is. I had to look it back up to be 100% sure. I, I literally had to learn that for college, and I still wasn't certain. So that was real, real weird. But the yes. back half of this sentence, again, we're still in the same sentence here. We have not crested this I do promise yet. that this episode's not going to be four hours long. We just, this this is the part we have to be careful in. Imagine if we were doing this close a read of the entire book. Well, there's usually so much more air between weirdness. It's true. Like, this is a brick. So, a synecdoche for Northeastern urbanites seeking summer escape in mountain air, comma, eventually competing with both the nearby Berkshire and Catskill regions for hard-won luxury tourist dollars. <laughs> Continuing what seems to be like the capitalist wankery. Well, I mean, it's just a weird this... history lesson now. It's not, this is not a contract or a non-disclosure agreement. I said it's a lore document. I mean, it's kind of a welcome brochure. It's not a well-written one. But like maybe you put some maybe you put a little history in a welcome brochure. So I guess we still only have three heads of Cerberus here. What set Shadow Lake apart was its boutique resort, the Overlook Lodge. The what now? The Overlook Lodge. I wonder if that has some sort of significance literarily. Hmm. We'll have to continue and see. Yeah, we'll have to think. You know, we're thinking about there's like all this security, there's housing here, but Lodge is also like the name mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. some of the characters, especially nefarious characters. Is this some sort of like panopticonic illusion that she's crafting here? Who could say? <laughs> Located at the peak of Mount Phoenix, which I think is just a funny name for a mountain in that region of the United States. Yeah, it, it seems just a little really southwestern, fit. doesn't it, rather sure than northeastern. Uh, yeah, didn't didn't catch that on my way through the first time. Yeah, the Overlook sought to distinguish itself from oversized, all-inclusive hotels by maintaining a small footprint with just ten private rooms, each with ensuite baths, fireplaces, and on-demand gourmet room service. Not much to pick apart there, aside from. The evident disdain for all-inclusive hotels. Oh, sure. I mean, it, this at least this did, like, venture back into the realm of believable ad copy. Yeah, uh, that that is something I will give this props for. That, the hard-earned luxury tourist dollars, and then that bit about privacy or quality and security. That all reads like the kind of shit that rich people lap up. Mm-hmm. So, whatever. Eventually, it became recognized as a premier alternative to mountain bungalow colony vacationing. I'm not sure what the word colony is doing in there. That that just makes it weird. Is it just when they put a bunch of bungalows together? I guess. It's like, look at that colony of bungalows. That's just the group noun for bungalows, I guess. I don't know, but... Here's where we... <laughs> Why is this next bit here? Tragically... The original lodge was destroyed in 1977, when an unwell caretaker engineered a total collapse of the building's boiler. Just go through this whole paragraph, and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll Willem Dafoe, there was a firefight it. <laughs> it's too fucking funny. 
<laughs> the incident was officially deemed an accident, though speculation abounds. Continuing to this day, local teens entertain ghost stories of the caretaker's spirit, suggesting it lingers along the banks of the water. Keep an eye out for Grady, in quotes, at midnight yourself. Quinn, I would like to lead you on a little path here. Using the Socratic method. I could use a path right now, Rob, because I'm so fucking lost. To do some leading questions for your enlightenment. What year do you imagine the Stephen King novel The Shining was published? Was it 1977? It was! <laughs> You've got to be fucking kidding me. It absolutely was, published in 1977. Would you like to guess how the Overlook Hotel was destroyed at the end of the Stephen King novel, The Shining? Uh, was an unwell caretaker engineering a total collapse of the building's boiler? Um, debatable. One could argue that Jack Torrance engineered the total collapse of the Overlook's boiler in a moment of fleeting clarity in order to rescue his wife and son from his own madness and, and the haunting of the hotel. Uh, but Jack Torrance is fundamentally an unwell man. He was, in fact, the caretaker of the Overlook Hotel, and he did, in fact, engineer a total collapse of the building's boiler, which is how the hotel was destroyed. Uh, I have one more question for you, Quinn. What do you imagine the famously murderous previous caretaker of the Overlook Hotel in the Stephen King novel The Shining published in 1977's name was? We'll be more specific. The surname that he was primarily known by. Could it possibly have been Grady? I'm so proud of you. You have advanced so far as my student, Quinn. <laughs> yes. Why Why Delbert Grady was, was his name, but mostly he was just known as Grady. Why? Holy shit! In the fuck is this here? Why did she just put a The Shining in this? I, I can't tell you, but we're not fucking done with this. <laughs> we're, we have scarcely begun, but this paragraph is just a partial plot synopsis of a Stephen King novel from 1977. That is not what I expected in my non-disclosure agreement brochure contract. You know what? I'd like to give props to Nicole Ostow here because she researched this. And that's not something I feel confident in saying about everything in this book. If by researched, you mean recently read The Shining and couldn't keep it out of her bullshit that she was writing, I agree with you. She remembered the date of publication, at least. <laughs> she looked at the copyright page. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, we're almost there. We have one more paragraph. And I think, I think we're on an upswing. I don't think it's quite as crazy as what it, came before. It does even out a bit here. We have Lodge Industries to thank for the Shadow Lake community's renaissance. The corporation bought the ruins of the inn and all surrounding property after the fire, focusing on renovating the remaining homes for private sale and restoring the Overlook to its original rustic grandeur. These days, President and Chairman Hiram Lodge maintains what was formerly the original inn as his family's private residence. If you see him or his beautiful wife and daughter out and about in town, do say hi. Above all, Hiram is a family man with a strong sense of community. We're thrilled to know he's at the helm of this very special place. <sighs> now please place your signature, forfeiting all of your human rights. That part wasn't and, in there. And but. probably also your soul? Because, yeah, so we made this luxury 
small resort thing. We named it after the hotel from The Shining. We had all the same things that happened in The Shining happen there. And we are now informed that Lodge Lodge was built up from the ruins of this haunted hotel. The place that we went and had that, like, pointless partying episode in season two is built from the bones of an evil haunted place. And, like... You know, I pointed out that the curtains in Lodge Lodge were The Shining's carpet pattern from the movie version of The Shining, like the Overlook's, like, iconic carpet. Um, I wonder if that's all it took. Like, like she watched the episode with Shadow Lake because this book was about Shadow Lake. And so, like, instead of just reading the Wikipedia summary, she actually watched that episode. She's like, oh, shit, I like The Shining. I'll just write about that. A complete and total brain blast. Yeah, like, she saw those curtains... And just, I mean, presumably came. Mm -hmm. I can write like half this book without looking at any more Riverdale shit now. (laughs) (laughs) That saves me half of a work day. (sighs) Yep. So that is amazing. I just, like I said, this, this one starts with a bang. Like I was, I was wrung out by the end of these two pages. Two pages, folks, by the way, for those keeping score. It has taken us almost half an hour to discuss their contents. It was a Gordian knot of what the fuck. On like every conceivable level, like grammatical, structural, conceptual, intratextual. Nicole Ostow truly begins part two of the book by finding you on the precipice at the top of some Pembroke steps and just fucking pushes you down. (laughs) It's a flex. It's a it's a specifically Nicole Ostow flex because this is not something that anyone else would flex about. But it's like, look how incomprehensible I can be. Nicole Ostow has such sights to show us, Quinn. What is the thought process behind putting together a document like that? I just like I know that sometimes I've done stuff like off the cuff or as I'm like trying to to generate content that maybe doesn't strictly fulfill its purpose as like an in-world document but I don't think I've ever made something this goddamn messy. It's like she can literally type as fast or faster than she can think. Like, and sometimes the typing gets out ahead a bit. It's it's wild. But uh, we're given a little bit of mercy because there's actually, like, just some story now uh, that's a little less horrible to get through. Yes, we should not be so plotting in the rest of it. It's a Veronica chapter that we are headed into next. But we start with Betty, uh, from Veronica's perspective, lamenting about how upset her mom is about Betty staying over at Veronica's place, which is merely the cover story, so imagine how upset she'd be about what they're actually doing. Jughead is driving the main four out towards Shadow Lake in what is implied to be a car stolen by the serpents. Because otherwise you would say, we borrowed a friend's car, rather than a car obtained through Jughead's serpent connections. This Uh is a stolen vehicle. So apparently the servants are doing Grand Theft Auto to help teens go for a little weekend murder investigating of a murder of which one of them is the accused. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just to add to their very diverse portfolio of gang activities, including, you know, a D&D club that never actually happened. Are we gonna, we're gonna have to keep a little watch on that when we get back into the show because they made a big deal about how the serpents were gonna have a club where they played D&D. They sure did. And And it definitely did not happen. No, it did not. Anyway. Veronica then points out that uh, having the internally, I guess she doesn't really point it out. This is in her internal monologue. She points out that having the boys sit in the front seats and the girls in the back seats is potentially sexist. 
but that she chooses to reclaim the back seat as a girl power move by choosing the seat that she prefers for herself. Jesus Christ. I guess that's another way to write a paragraph into a book. (laughs) Sure is. Like bringing hashtag girl boss energy to the back seat. I would. Is it sexist to sit in the back seat? (laughs) Oh my God. This is so stupid. Oh, okay. Mm. What follows is a roller coaster. Betty is nervous by her body language, and Veronica thinks to herself that Betty is, quote, dangerously close to going full dark. Then Jughead immediately comments on how dark the night is, saying, talk about full dark, no stars. And Veronica points out that that's funny because she was just thinking about that, but then instantly points out that it's not funny at all but neglects to point out that they were not actually thinking about the same thing because Betty's body language and mood and and the lighting conditions of the night sky are not the same thing. Dark, it turns out, in the English language, is a word with more than one definition, actually, and two different ones were used, but Veronica, in her own internal monologue, somehow does not recognize that fact. (laughs) It's a lot. Like, (laughs) that sequence fucking sent me. (laughs) It was not funny. (laughs) This is not the last time Ostat will just say, the joke I just made was not funny. Which is like the literary literary humor equivalent of, like, getting your ass kicked and then saying, like, I let you win. (laughs) I also want to say, at this point, The more of these chapters I read, the more I felt like ultimately what I was reading was something that was produced by one of those bots that consumes maybe (laughs) all of the Wikipedia uh, entries for episodes of Riverdale, as well as just a large... The Shining, and then just a large (laughs) corpus of random pop culture phrases and, like, references, and then spit a script out the other side. I mean... Yeah, we said we weren't going to go so slow, but like this passage, Veronica's worried about how nervous Betty looks and Jughead talks about how there's not much light in the night sky. And and that's the same thing because the words that she thought of in her internal monologue were the same as the word that Jughead... Oh my God. There's no time to dwell on this, Rob, because there's reminiscence that's about to come about the Shoggoth box. You're right. And before that... My tunes and Songify. We have some nice uh, Riverdale brand names there. They were lamenting that there's no, you know, modern music service that they can use to try to cut the tension of the horror movie introduction scene uh, flavored night. But they turn on the radio to the only available station, the same Christ spewing station that was on the bonkers ass Halloween episode, Shoggoth Box from season two of River Do's and River Don'ts. Go listen to that one, even if you don't listen to all the other ones. <laughs> Shoggoth Box featuring Tony Todd. Yes. It's clearly like, ah, day of revelation, judgment shall come, blah, 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 right. Yep. Like it that's says- that's what the radio is. But subtlety, Quinn, is fucking poison. So they actually literally say out loud that it's the same station from that episode of the TV show. And then just spend some fucking time and pages recapping that episode from season two of the TV show. I love it. 
Also, I want to take a quick aside here. This might not even make it into the final edit. Joe and I are rewatching Avatar The Last Airbender right now. We've been tearing through it. Still holds up in a lot of regards. There's some stuff that I may be more critical about than I would have been before. But there's a couple of points that I've had in the show where a character does something or says something that clearly, like, echoes and calls back to something from before that, like, really clearly creates this, like, emotional contextual thematic through line and uh-huh. I'm like beautiful that was excellent I love how you tied that all together and then there's a beat and then another character just says well it's just like that and I'm like I suppose it is a children's show yes it is for children in the adult version of this that I would write I maybe would have just cut that if it was in the original draft I would have said hey maybe you can just leave this because I think the moment hangs beautifully like that but it's a it's a kid's show Riverdale right. isn't exactly children's it's ya yeah i think that i think that this does not give the ostensible audience enough credit no because like it just it really feels like a like a fart in that car that you're stuck with these kids in when they're like oh this is just like this thing that happened on the show let's talk about that for a while uh, but yeah, Jughead caps his season two Wikipedia blurb with a seeming non sequitur, but I think we can all live by this. And I'll quote, I'll start working on my sunny disposition when Riverdale stops being so Riverdale. And that is, those are my house words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what he's talking about when he is saying this. Like, it has nothing to do with what he was saying before. When, like, was his sunny disposition somehow in question during the discussion of Shoggoth Box? I mean, Veronica points out it's about as comforting as your constantly gruesome references. And then he does that Wikipedia summary. And then he says, yeah, I'll start working on my sunny disposition when Riverdale stops being so Riverdale. Oh, okay, I guess. She's throwing shit out there so fast, Rob. I can't blame you well, for missing well, it. Well, what, what happens is she, Veronica says that, then he summarizes part of the plot of Shoggoth Box, and then Archie asks him a clarifying question, and Jughead, no, it's just, it's still so weird. because like it's very it's, weird. It's a response to something that he ignores and then does a Wikipedia summary of a previous event, then gets into a side discussion with Archie, and he says the answer to Veronica's thing to Archie. It's very strange. Don't be so literal, Archie, Jughead said. My point was only that I'll start working on my sunny disposition when Riverdale stops being so Riverdale. My point that I was making by summarizing the events of Shoggoth Box was a response to Veronica's unrelated question. No, getting into it doesn't make it make more sense. It makes it make less sense. Yeah, it's, (laughs) I don't know what's going on here. I do want to draw attention to what comes next. Uh, Veronica starts ruminating on the nature of her and Betty's relationship, and Nicole Ostow does something that I find a bit revealing right here. Oh, let's let's dish. Quote, we don't keep secrets from each other. Period. New paragraph. Except for when we did. Period. There was probably a Machiavellian saying relevant to that too, but I didn't want to dwell on it. Which is to say, I didn't want to write it. Yes, you are very right about that. That's not the first time. No, but it's just funny when she writes out like, I could have put something here, but I chose not to. Imagine I said something clever. It's like this little literary judo move. It's a rules hole. Yep. Oh my goodness. They nearly crash their car as Jughead sees something run out in front of it. Turns out, a black cat. Uh, and... I hate to be this guy, but they try to describe a look of um, sort of unnerving intellect in the eyes of the cat. Like, that's what they're going for. Like, ooh, this cat's giving me a bad vibe. But 
The cat peered straight at us, like it could hear us, like it could understand the words we were speaking. Buddy, cats can hear you. It's not weird or unnerving for a cat to be able to hear. Being able to hear and being able to understand the words you're speaking are two different levels of weird. Also, what the cat does then is blink slowly. Do you know what it means when a cat blinks slowly at you, Rob? It's, a, it's an expression of trust. Yes. So Ostow is building this cat as unnerving and, and scary, and then the cat is like... Behaving like a normal fucking cat? That they have a relationship with. Meow, it's all okay. I actually kind of like you folks. But anyway, obviously this is a cute little reference because they're on their way to Greendale. Like, this cat is probably Salem from Sabrina. Probably. Probably. It seems to be more intelligent than a normal cat. Yep. And apparently all the cats in the Riverdale universe are deaf, except for probably this one, apparently. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's a fun, just a fun little wink. Yep, indeed. Well, a slow blink anyway. They decide to get back on the road, not because they have anything they're, you know, like, doing on this trip of theirs to exonerate Archie, but rather because someone could have heard the car and called the cops. Okay. Like, they just, they don't talk about the urgency of getting back on the road because they're trying to stop their friend from going to jail. They're like, ooh, someone might have called the cops because we had a single car accident in the middle of fucking nowhere in the middle of the night. I can buy that for teenagers. I suppose maybe. Yeah. It is a bit silly. It's pretty stupid. I won't deny that, but I can buy that teenagers would start panicking about something like that. Jughead points out that they're in the first scene of a Stephen King novel and drops this absolute bomb. Quote, Nothing awesome follows a story beat like this. (laughs) While objectively true in the context of this book, I have to disagree for a couple reasons, because the first act of a Stephen King novel is usually the best. For for the sudden obsession with Stephen King that this book is exhibiting, the understanding of King is really just not quite there. Uh, and yeah, like, just having a character say, well, whatever's next is gonna suck in this story is just so amazing. Ah. Uh-oh, though. Turns out they blew a tire during the skid. So that's the end of the chapter. Verona counter time. I was not even doing it formally because things have gotten so disappointing uh, in this book with that. But I thought for this chapter, including the Shadow Lake thing, so this is not strictly Veronica, I would count film and literature references, uh, of which there are 13. 13 film and literature references in 10 pages. Importantly, seven of them are Stephen King references. Jesus. Less than two pages pass per Stephen King reference in this chapter. It's a lot. So with this tire blown, I suppose it's probably time for us to move on to the next chapter. Which is an Archie chapter. And just looking at the body of my notes, it looks like not much happens in this chapter because I have way the fuck less notes than I do for, like, the other stuff. It does not start trying to split your brain open. Yeah. And cook it like an egg. Archie laments how stupid he was to trust Hiram Lodge. Fair. And rhapsodizes about how far downhill his life has gone since that horrible decision. He decides to try to fix the car, if there's any spare tire. Totally stealing Betty's spotlight. Did you watch the show? I think Ostow did not. Anyway. They call attention uh, to that. They they do, in fact, correct this later. This seeming subversion of something from the show was an excuse to just write more words about it by then pointing out that it actually makes more sense to have Betty fix the car. 
And Jughead is just watching it all happen, making strangely homoerotic remarks. I mean, I, ooh, this is so weird. Jughead says that it's great when Archie goes all grease monkey, pointing out that, quote, the fanfic writes itself. What the fuck does that mean? What the fuck does that mean? In the story of Riverdale, there is no Riverdale TV show. What are they talking about fanfic for? I don't know. I don't this is, know. This, that is not something that a normal person says to their other normal person friend. Like, fan fiction is about fiction. It's not about, you don't write fan fiction about real life. Some people write fan fiction about real life. I won't lie, but not like this. Serial killers. <laughs> but no, it's just, it's the most bizarre fucking way of saying whatever it is. He's like, oh, the fanfic writes itself. What? Like, even if we can get past how weird it is that he's using the idea of fan fiction for something that is ostensibly real life. What does he mean? What is he talking about? I don't know, but it's impossible for me to read it without imagining Cole Sprouse biting his lip. So it's weird. If that's what we're doing, why are we doing that here? Those are like the literal only two characters in the entire fucking cast of the show that there hasn't been sexual tension between. Despite many opportunities for there to be. Kevin Keller had more sexual tension with his own dad. <laughs> than these two had together, if you remember. Oh, how could I forget? <laughs> uh, anyway, that was fucking weird. Then and only then, Jughead remembers that Betty is good at auto mechanics and uh, suggests that she, in fact, take point on the tire change. A cop then shows up and acts like he is suspicious of them rather than interested in helping them with their car trouble, which Oh, my, is... hold on. Go ahead. She spends about a page here, maybe three quarters of a page, spinning in some weird false conflict about whether or not Jughead is going to take off his jacket. Oh, you're right. Yeah, like, oh, Serpent never sheds his skin. Like, they, they talk about that rule, but they would prefer him not to be wearing his Serpent's jacket because there's a cop, and they all kind of worry about whether or not he's going to be cool about it but then he's just cool about it well you're right he... three quarters of a page later and it's weird because he does the a serpent never sheds its skin that's what he always said when i gave him crap about wearing a serpent jacket then betty makes a comment and says desperate times quote like she was worried he was going to do the sherpa the sherpa thing the sherpa thing hmm. yeah yeah he's gonna pick the cop up on his back <laughs> and yeah. walk down a steep mountain quote like she was worried he was going to do the serpent shed thing like usual but then he doesn't so yeah, it's just it's just a, a page of nothing. Then there's a weird thing. That, my favorite part of this actually is when she starts describing the cop who appears to have a build of someone who used to be quite athletic but no longer yep. is. I've met plenty of plenty of folks like that. It's like a body type that you see in the real world. However, Archie says he was big, like he'd played football once. Maybe for the Bulldogs even, but not in a while. Not with that sag. And this is the part that threw me. And those dark shadowed circles under his eyes. A football player never goes without sleep. We certainly have never seen Archie, the football player, with big dark circles under his eyes from not Nor sleeping. Nor have we ever seen football players with some sort of dark marking under their eyes either. <laughs> oh my god. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> like, it's just, yeah, that manages to be really, really weird and like off the beaten path. You can't have played football in a long time. You look tired. <laughs> 
Uh, this cop is like just suspicious of the kids rather than interested in helping them with their car trouble, which is legit on a verisimilitude yeah. basis. Uh, Veronica gets snippy with him in a way that you wouldn't if you knew what cops actually do to people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in any case, her threats to call her parents to tell on the cop, to tattle on the cop, actually do work because she's Veronica Lodge and the cop fucks off. And like, I do like, I don't know if this was at all on purpose or not. You don't know which one of these threats is the one that works. My mom, the legitimate authority figure, the mayor, or my dad, the mafia boss. Who could say Who which could one say, sells it? Because she doesn't give him enough time to process any one threat. No, she, he just she throws he run, one out. He runs off like a scalded dog when she talks about talking to her parents. I asked if you were hurt. <laughs> yeah, he tries to like defend himself after the fact. It's pretty funny. Anyway, Betty realizes that a gray van coasted by no engine, like no gas, no headlights while they were talking to the cop, which puts a paranoid chill into everybody and ends the chapter on an actual bit of tension. My God. Oh, my weird van and nobody believes Betty. This is the first hint of plot since the decision to go to Shadow Lake. Like this could have been. Well, Rob, let's give him some credit. The decision to go to Shadow Lake happened last chapter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm saying that this this could be the end of chapter one if this was written to tell an actual story. Yes. Yes. We're Instead, we're on like... Uh, Page 116. Yeah. Of 280. Very, very weird. She does, however, end the chapter doing the weird joke but not a joke thing again. <laughs> yeah, she does. Operation Cabin in the Woods is a go. It wasn't a joke, but it was kind of the closest Jughead ever got. And none of this was really funny anyway. <laughs> End of chapter. <laughs> Why would you say that? Does Zosto have, like, a, a, a humor-focused humiliation, humiliation kink? Fetish? Yes! <laughs> we thought of the same thing! <laughs> I thought that my idea was way too weird. I wasn't even super you know confident about saying it on Rob? the mic. And we just like jinxed it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it does read a little bit like that because it happens across characters. <laughs> My jokes aren't funny, haha. It uh -huh. would be very embarrassed if I had to tell my unfunny jokes in front of someone, haha. Do you think if Yoshi pooed an egg, he would be embarrassed? <laughs> if he pooed an egg in front of everyone and then told a joke that wasn't actually funny, haha, someone should draw it. It's so fucking weird. <laughs> Oh my god. There there there's water coming from my eyes now. <laughs> Whew. That was amazing. <laughs> what, what a wonderful organic moment. Ugh. <sighs> okay. So we, we get end some the chapter texts. on some more cryptic fucking text messages. Uh, it's really amazing because, like, one, two, it's three pages. And nothing more happens. More like two and a half, but, like, three pages are taken up. Three sides of pages taken up in the book. Josie basically blows off Reggie, then checks in with Sweet Pea, who kind of doesn't give her anything. And then Sweet Pea gets threatened by Penny Peabody to give her some results, damn it! Something that I think is really funny about this exchange is we get a piece of character writing 
for Josie that I think is incredibly inauthentic for a teen in the year 2017, 2018, whenever this took place. And that is that she's ending all of her texts with TTYL. Like when she ends a conversation, she says TTYL, which I have not seen anyone do in a text exchange in years. Yeah, because the idea of a text conversation ever being over has passed away from uh, culture. And like, if you take out the TTYL from either of her, like, terminating texts, they read perfectly fine as, you're not gonna read anything from me for a while. Yep. It's yep. weird. It's almost like a, you know, a Gen X person wrote the book or something. Could be. Just a theory. Why don't you call me, haha? <sighs> <sighs> It's time for chapter 11. We're starting with Josie and motherfucking hashtag Venom Watch 2020. This is not a drill. We get some actual movement on this and I am shocked, shocked to my core, 120 pages into the book and this like offhand ridiculous non sequitur mentioned way, way earlier actually bears some fruit and I cannot tell you how excited I am. <laughs> uh, we do get some salient details. Uh, we find out that Venom is a band. Uh, it is not the British extreme metal band, like super uh, influential band of the actual name Venom. It is a it is a girl band, and they play a genre called extreme post millennial girl grunge. That does not describe music. Extreme can describe music, but post millennial does not. Millennial is not a music genre or style. Girl grunge is a style, but girl grunge is not post-millennial. Girl grunge is from the mid-90s. <laughs> well, right, unless it is a reinvention of the girl grunge genre from the perspective of people post-millennia. But, like, post-millennial now describes a swath of, like, 20 years. Well, right, and I don't know if they mean, like, oh, was there, like, the millennial decade, which is the aughts, or what have you. It doesn't make sense. Like, taxonomically, it's garbage. Or it's, it's, it, it can only have people Gen Z and younger, right? Like, right. It's just, that's not how you describe music. You don't describe music by, like, especially if it's just a current band. This is reading, like, something that someone would describe this band as 30 years from now. Well, right, because the only thing I can think of in terms of describing, like, if you're going to use, like, generational terminology, like, the best thing I can think of is people calling Jimmy Buffett boomer music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, you would not, you don't, like, let's, let's imagine that it's the 1980s, right? And, like, fucking Duran Duran put puts out a record, you don't call it 80s new wave band Duran Duran <laughs> when it is in fact right now the 80s. That's not how, that's not how any of this works. Maybe it should be. <laughs> we can just current year argument like every entertainment product just to, just to take up more space on pages, I guess. Yep. <sighs> the show that they're going to be playing is described as, quote, a showdown, which again is giving me these powerful Scott Pilgrim versus the world vibes of just literally playing at the same time in this right. incomprehensible mess. Uh, and, I can't wait to find out for sure. And apparently around here they have, quote, a lot of crossover audience. Uh-huh. The Okay, here, riddle me this, Quinn. How would you describe the genre that or genres that Josie and the Pussycats play in because they're they're just it's a variety of pop standards and covers 
they're just, yeah, they're a weird minimalist pop cover band, but like not current. Like they, they do songs from the 50s and also songs from like the 2010s. Uh, they did Milkshake, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And that's, yeah, that's from a different, isn't that? 2006 or 2007, I think. Yeah, so there, there's another, another. God, the aughts were a bad, bad decade for music. Holy shit. Do you ever think about the Laffy Taffy song? <laughs> Not what I can help it. <laughs> um, like, yeah, so anyway, Josie lets us know that the Pussycats drank hard the night before a gig, saying that it wouldn't be very rock star of them to properly care for their voices before a show. And, uh, like, no. I've been in bands, and let me just tell you this. Everyone but the vocalist gets to do that. You have to party like mad people after the show if you're a vocalist. Uh, Like, maybe in a screaming-only band, but even that, if you're doing, like, doing it well, like, good death metal vocals, like, you generally actually have to have your voice in pretty good shape. There's actually a lot of technique to it to be able to do it in a way that doesn't make your career literally two years, and then you don't have a voice permanently anymore. Right. Can you imagine, Rob, like, Ronnie James Dio in his prime just shredding his throat the night before a performance? It wouldn't happen. To that point, even... Someone in a modern, like, death or black metal, like, Corpse Grinder uh, right. from fucking Cannibal Corpse is is maybe doing some drinking, but he's probably also doing some, like, proper hydration and tea and honey and stuff the night before as well. Uh, yeah, like, everyone but the vocalist gets to party hard the night before, because you can play a guitar drunk or play the drums drunk, but, like, when you, it doesn't matter that you're drunk, your, your vocal folds are fucking desiccated from alcohol, and that's bad. But anyway, anyway, like only bands that don't care about sounding good live and just want to like play at being bands, uh, let their fucking singers drink like that. But yep, it's it's the Riverdale tradition of like sort of knowing some surface level like appearances and not knowing the deeper facts and just going with it. And not to get all fucking cinema sins here, because I think that sucks ass. But I think we have seen Josie actually being proactive and taking care of. We have of her vocal yeah. instrument. It was like the cornerstone of one of the freaky Halloween episodes. Yep. It was something that she was very, very freaked out by was that like her voice was doing bad stuff because her like her throat was not in good physical condition. So it is out of character for her to be like, eh, fuck it. I'll just like pound hard alcohol the night before I have to sing for an hour. But anyway... Oh, we find out that the band Venom is headquartered in the south side and between the name and the location, you know what that means, Quinn? It's a fucking snake band! Yeah, it is. (laughs) Ah, this is by far my favorite part of this book. Is just the whole Venom saga. Um, but yeah, now jo- Josie's We're sections. feasting on scraps here, but so yeah. delicious are they. Yeah, Josie's section's fucking pointless. My, my favorite line from it as we get to the end is cat scratch fever, even if it was temporary. Yep. Thanks. You're right. There's a cat theme. You got it. Good it's job. being laid on so hard. <sighs> but then we skip to Betty's diary. Ugh. And there's a lot of this. <laughs> Good thing it's the last thing. I'm running out of fucking energy. First there. off, we brazenly recap the sighting of the gray van in Betty's diary, which isn't just a powerful Ostow maneuver, but it brings up a crucial question for me. When did Betty write this diary entry? Like, it picks up right where the last chapter left off. But but it recounts what it recounts, well, again, which means that this diary entry was written at a point in the future. 
that hasn't happened in the story yet. But it would only make sense as, like, an in-world document if it were being written concurrently because of the way that, like, the tension and the doubt of all of this stuff is portrayed. Again, this has no consideration for its form. It's a diary, but it's just a diary because diaries are a thing that evoke Betty, and it's just present tense narration. It is not actually a diary at all. No, God, no. But we have to but we have to take things seriously. We have to respect the purity of our mission with Riverdoos and Riverdon'ts and take this seriously as a diary entry that Betty did in fact at some point write, even though we risk madness. Anyway, they go to the Shadow Lake General Store, which is open in the middle of the fucking night, despite it being a vacation spot, Shadow Lake. Like it's not a big metropolitan center. No. The thing would not be open in the middle of the night. But anyway, it is. Uh Betty has a bit of a freakout, clearly not doing well with her Adderall abuse. So she goes to the bathroom and abuses some more Adderall. Oh, boy. Betty, canonically now, does not know that stimulants can make you nervous. And if you're having a freakout of anxiety, taking more stimulants is a bad idea. <sighs> it's true. Are, are you ready to talk about some Adderall facts here? Yeah, Glenn? yeah. So there's that. There's that whole thing. Like, they don't generally give Adderall even at, like, a level that, like, would fuck a normal person up that much unless she's getting really big doses. Well, she's obviously probably well, taking way too much. Yes, no, she's... that's usually how you abuse Adderall, but here she takes half a pill to, to sort of goose the effect, I guess. So I think that's but, interesting. But that's what she does. She is, she's having anxiety, and so she takes more. Yeah, no, and, like, really genuinely, it's one of the most common side effects of stimulants. It increases yeah. your heart rate. It can cause gastrointestinal distress, and those are two big things that people associate with anxiety. It can also make you flush because of your increased heart rate. Like, it gives you a lot of the symptoms that people associate with anxiety, and so anxiety is a really common side effect. It's really easy to interpret those symptoms as being just anxiety. She also describes them as little blue pills. If these are sizable pills of Adderall, they're not that small. Like, the 10 milligrams, the smallest dose, those are pretty tiny. But I... Any bigger than that, they start... To, they're like, oh, hey, that's like a pill. Mm -hmm. um, also, I've never seen Adderall that isn't orange. Me either. It's always orange. It's always orange. At least in my experience. Like, and I have... You know, especially having worked at the um, residential treatment center, I saw a lot of fucking Adderall. Right. So there's that. Again, also in my experience, never seen it not orange. And just the idea of Betty Cooper, intelligent character with access to the internet, thinking that the way that you calm yourself down from a freakout is to take more Adderall is just fucking wild. No, at, at that point, if you're having a freakout, you got to find some way to like try to calm yourself down and stop taking stimulants. It's like, oh my god, I'm freaking the fuck out for a normal person. Like, I'm gonna drink a monster energy drink. Yeah, or five. Yeah, it's just, it's a stupid, stupid thing. So I have another Adderall fact here, because she swallows the pill dry. Uh-huh. Failing it, catch for a second in the back of my throat. That's fine. Uh, Adderall does that sometimes. I've had that happen. I've had it with my Lexapro 2. Dry swallowing pills kind of sucks. Then she says it didn't have a taste. Not really, but my mouth was still rank and bitter. That's not true, especially if she cut the Adderall in half. Yeah, it's true, because the coating it's, is compromised then. It's bitter when you do that. You you do taste a bitter thing as it slides down your throat and, like, on the back of your tongue. I know because I've done it. It's almost like she doesn't know what she's writing about. And, like, I guess because of my own perspective as someone who medically uses Adderall, like, sure, but how hard would it be to look up what color the pills are? I feel like I can't really blame her 
for not knowing about like the taste, but it's this weird. Is a, this is it's a casualty weird. in her holy crusade against spending one more minute writing this book than was absolutely necessary to get it published. Right. And also, it should point out, she spends an entire page describing what the bathroom looks like and the physical sensation of dry swallowing a pill. Mm -hmm. Like a whole ass page. Yep. The store clerks, who are creepy blonde twins, okay, The Shining, confront Archie about being the one who shot Cassidy. They just recognize him. I guess it's small towns, whatever. Uh, Betty gets mad at them, which she, of course, thinks means the darkness of Hal Cooper is living on in his daughter. It's so fucking funny. That's your highest shit. I'm angry at these people who are being mean. That means that that the seed of evil has taken root. It's so dumb. You're really high because you've been abusing Adderall. You're already feeling, like, anxious and, like, short-tempered. And someone is just accusing your friend of murder. That means you're the devil. (laughs) But then she goes to a lot of length to actually defend the fact that Cassidy got killed. She does. She's like, look, we're not actually, like, we didn't do it, but we're not. But if he did, it would have been totally justified. He was going to kill us. What did you expect? But he didn't do it. But if he did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But then we're we're not finished with this whirlwind because Jughead jokes that those twins are similar to the twins from The Shining. But he but he doesn't drop well, the book title in the joke. No. So Betty puts it in her diary that it was a reference to The Shining. Underlined. Ostow, what did Stephen King do to you? <laughs> Less than a page later, he references The Shining again! This is gonna be rough going, I think, for part two. Because it's gonna be nothing but The Shining all the way down. (laughs) What happened? This is a three- this three-chapter chunk has to have 15 to 20 references to The Shining. That might be low. That's how you buff the page count. You just start dropping in Shining references. I guess. Holy shit. Like, and you do remember, of course, that (laughs) Pop Tate's relative had the power of the Shining. Oh, yes. We did not know that that was like the advanced reconnaissance scout of the army of Shining references that were going (laughs) to invade the book. Truly wild. So they just kind of have a small exchange outside of the store where they're like, well, it's no surprise that people hate us here. Jughead then takes a minute to say, and don't get me started on the Grady twins in there. Yep. Again, that's what I said. Less than a page. Also calling really conspicuous, obvious attention to the fact, if you're doing a close read like we are, that the guy who exploded the the boiler room of the first Overlook Lodge was Grady. Yeah, like, it's just, yeah, the Shining references are in documentation, in the heads of every, it's not just that, like, characters are making Shining references, characters are thinking in Shining references, multiple different characters. I have, I have a theory. Like, how tuned in were we to pop culture in 2018, whenever this book is set? Like, how in tune do you think that we were? Because I think it might be possible that we just completely missed 2018's Shining Fever period. <clears throat> when everyone across the nation was going apeshit for The Shining. I think Dr. Sleep had been announced as uh, being produced for a film. So people were starting yeah, to read up on it. Yeah, film. Right. People were probably reading up on it. People were probably really thinking, hey, this Stephen King guy, this Shining book, there's something to it. It was published in 1977. 
and the the caretaker of the Overlook Hotel engineers uh, disaster in the boiler room. Yep, I mean maybe 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 The Shining got super super hot for for a bit there. But here's the thing: even if The Shining was the number one movie in America at the time, which it was not in 2018 god no it wasn't whatever uh it still would not explain how every character is thinking and references to a 1977 novel well right because and these are novel references specifically like yeah a lot of them are like the overlook hotel does not blow up in the movie so also there's a weird conflation because grady is not the one who blows up the hotel it's jack torrance grady was already dead at the start of the book right just had to do a little bit of obfuscation i guess yeah they didn't want to they didn't want to make it too obvious they didn't want to make it obvious quinn that would be shameless yeah anyway they're outside the store archie's looking off into the middle distance confused they ask him what's up and he said he could swear that he saw that gray van just there outside the store as we close this reading of Riverdale. Get out of town! We have to be prepared for the possibility of a van ghost. A vampire, if you will. Oh no! Holy shit. This was crazy. I, I really don't have the words. Again, we got two two-page spreads that were transcendent. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. probably as I exhale my dying breath, I'm going to be trying to spend all of my time thinking about the time I had cultivating my relationship, all of the wonderful time I've gotten to treasure with the people I love and with my wife. But what's going to happen is I'm going to have this intrusive thought about this description of Shadow Lake. <laughs> and I'm going to whisper to God, and I'm going to ask for that time back. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Quinn. I... <sighs> truly wish I could tell you that I had an inkling for where this is going. No, I... Like, it's amazing. They spent the whole first third of the book sort of deciding what to do with the story of the book. And we've spent the first three chapters of the post-decision to have a story not yet actually getting to the place they're trying to go. And again, if you were starting the novel around here, it might work to sort of, like, get things up to speed, build tone and stuff. Not a third of the way through the book. And not uh, like I, this. I mean, but there's no way. There's no way we possibly could have guessed what was going to happen in this section. So, like, I'm still excited about it, even though the prospect of a coherent story is virtually completely shattered at this point. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Quinn, sorry for ruining your life by bringing you along on this journey with me. But, you know, it's like Macbeth said. We are in blood stepped in so far that should we wade no more, returning were as tedious as go or. Truly. I feel like I've probably said that about Riverdale before in my life. I wouldn't be surprised. Wowza. For pros and cons, I've been Rob. I've been Quinn. And we'll see you next time. And legitimately, I think we have given up all illusion of control. We don't know what's going to happen. And I think that's the point. Nicole, take the wheel. I think Riverdale is practice for embracing the inherent chaos of the universe. I, th I think that's maybe what the central compulsion is. To read deeply into Riverdale is to accept one's own death. Albert Camus said that the way to deal with the crushing weight of existentialism with the fact that you are left with this world that inherently means nothing, left only really to impose your own meaning if there is any meaning to be found, is to embrace the absurdity of things, by which he meant consume as much Riverdale media as you possibly can. Right, right. One must consider Sisyphus happy at his task because 
Riverdale tie-in novel text is etched around the surface of the boulder, so as he pushes it, he gets to read Riverdale Get Out of Town. Exactly. That's that's it. That's the legend of Sisyphus as described by Albert <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, that's the stinger at the end of that one. Yeah. <laughs>